movie came out about two months ago now, somewhere thereabouts, late February, The Jesus Revolution, um, which was uh, uh, retelling of the history of our the family that we're a part of, Calvary Chapel. Um, I don't know if you saw it, or I know a number of people of you have now. Um, it was really, really good. I uh, enjoyed it immensely. Um, tells the love story of Greg and Kathy Laurie, um, and also the, the history of, of kind of Calvary Chapel. Kelsey Grammar plays Calvary, or plays Calvary, plays Chuck. <laughs> and, uh, huh? Plays the entire church, yeah. He, he does it really well, too. But uh, kind of this history of the late 60s, early 70s, the, the movement getting started, and how Time Magazine tried to capture, record it, and whatnot, and uh, Lonnie Frisbee and the uh, hippies joining the movement, and uh, just radical things going on in, in Southern California at the time. And uh, it kind of reminded me that we as Church 860, even though we don't have Calvary Chapel in the name, that's who we are. That's who we're a part of. We are associated with Calvary Chapel. And I recognize that here in Columbus, Ohio, that name doesn't bear as much weight as it does in Southern California. Uh, just about everybody knows Calvary Chapel out there. And so, but you mention it here to the average person on the street, they're gonna be like, yeah, I've never, never heard about it. I know the word Calvary uh, and probably get confused with Cal, Cal um, which I often do, uh, saying them anyway. <laughs> but. Uh, um, and so I, I just as we're kind of doing things unplugged and doing things a little bit differently right now, I thought it might be a good opportunity just to say, this is who we are. And these are the things that are important to us. We, have, we read from the book last week, the Calvary Chapel Distinctives that Chuck wrote saying, this is what makes our movement distinct from other churches. Uh, and we focused last week on the importance or the centrality of the word of God. Like I said last week, we truly believe this this book changes people's lives. And if we just present it um, week after week, then we trust that the Holy Spirit, through his word, will ultimately change people's lives. The things that I say may or may not impact you, but I trust that his word will impact you. And so we strive to teach the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Like we read in Distinctives last week, there are times for topical messages, which is kind of what we're doing in this little break um, to kind of emphasize things. And so um, we landed last week on this verse early on in Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It is the beginning of the church, the book that um, we are all a part of today. Um, they were, the disciples were told to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit fell, uh, and then from there to carry out the mission that God had in store for them. And what was amazing was, as soon as the Holy Spirit did fall, the church took off. Um, Jesus had about 500 disciples. Uh, while he while he was ministering on the earth in the three years that he was serving, 
of course, he had the 12 that were closest to him. He had the inner circle of three. He had the 70 uh, that he gave power to, to, to give to do miracles. And, uh, and then uh, the 120 in the upper room. And, and ultimately, we think somewhere around 500 disciples. Well, the Holy Spirit falls. Peter preaches this message, ready, fire, aim, Peter. Comes off with this amazing sermon in the, in the second chapter of the book of Acts. And it says that 3,000 souls are saved that day. But the, the, the word of God with the power of God magnifies what he is doing. And so um, after the sermon ends, everybody's marveling at, did that come from Peter? <laughs> uh, everybody's marveling at, at all that God is doing. And it says in Acts 2.42 what the church was established with. Uh, we read this last week. And they continued steadfastly. That means they repeated the, the process. They, they continued to do these things. Um, they were faithful to it. In the Apostles' Doctrine, which is the teaching, uh, the reading of the Word, which we, we talked about, and, and the breaking of bread and, and prayers. And so what I wanted to talk about today was that second finger of these four things, fellowship. Jesus says in John, the world will know us as his disciples by the love that we have for one another. It's not necessarily by the words that we say or the things that we do. It's how we care for and demonstrate our love with one another. Pastor Dave always used to say that his goal was to have the best fed, best loved sheep in the world. I'm like, that's so cool. You know, I, I don't know how many times I heard Dave say that to me or just say that in general. I remember in our conversations, that, yeah, I just want to have the best fed, best loved sheep. And come to find out that wasn't Dave's thing. That was a Calvary Chapel thing. Like there's a lot of Calvary Chapel pastors that say that, and that's by no means exclusive to Calvary Chapel. I think the heart of a shepherd is to say, "I want the best, love, best fed, best loved sheep." That love is what we have together as a family that makes. Our movement makes our family, and it's what's known as fellowship. That word in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, is the word koinonia. Um, I've, how's the joke go? I don't even remember now. I know a little Hebrew and I know a little Greek, you know, um, a little Hebrew. Hebrew runs a deli, the little Hebrew, the Greek runs a Euro shop, and that's how I, that's, that's the, yeah. Um, I know enough, I don't know, I've never taken Hebrew or Greek, to, but I know a few words here and there. And the word koinonia is what's translated fellowship. But I think that word fellowship is not a great translation of the word koinonia. It leaves, as is typical with the English language, it leaves something to be desired. 
the word koinonia means more than just what you and I understand to be fellowship. We think of, what do you think of fellowship? When I say that word, what does it mean? Like, huh? Hanging out? Yeah, like, huh? Being together. Being together, right. We, we like, associate the word with a meal, typically, right? Hey, this, month, this week is the fellowship meal. But if that's all it is, it's falling woefully short of what God intended. If it's a one meal, it's the, the time hanging out after church, we fall, it's falling woefully short of what God intended. The, the word koinonia is actually translated um, several different ways in the New Testament outside of the word fellowship. Uh, Chuck Smith put together a list. Um, this, he says, fellowship is an attempted translation of the fascinating Greek word koinonia, for which we have no English equivalent. The word means an intimate sharing of oneself with another. Intimate sharing of oneself with another. That's the love that the world is missing. And that's how they know we are his disciples. When we have that intimate, what was it? Sharing of oneself with another. In Romans 15, verse 26, the word is translated, koinonia, is translated as contribution. For it has pleased, for it has pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. That word is koinonia. It is giving of oneself. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul asked, What communion has light with darkness? The word communion is koinonia, fellowship. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians about giving money for the poor saints in Jerusalem, he stated that they received this gift. They will glorify God for the fact they have received the gospel of Christ and for their liberal distribution unto them. The word distribution is the word koinonia. When Paul wrote to Philemon, he said he thanked God he heard of his love and faith which he has toward Jesus and all of the saints, and that the communication of his faith might become effectual. The word communication is koinonia. This koinonia, this koinonia is then manifested in verse 42, where we read that believe, they believed, uh, they that believed were together and had all things in common. The same root as koinonia. So we have it translated several different ways. And I think maybe if we take all of those translations, fellowship, uh, an intimate sharing with oneself with another, contribution, uh, communion, distribution, perhaps with the, all of those words, we can gain a greater understanding of what we're striving for when we say we want to be a fellowship. My hope for Church 860 is that we have the best fed, best loved sheep. And by that, I mean that we're healthy that we're healthy, and not just physically healthy, 
but mentally healthy, emotionally healthy, and most importantly, spiritually healthy. That the things that we ingest via Bible studies together, Sunday mornings, time together, meals together, would compel us to have a love for one another that is uncommon, that is different than what the world can offer. And by that, they will know we are his disciples. We want to be rooted in the word, and we want to have this koinonia that we, we want to pursue. Sadly, there are so many things that hinder koinonia. There are so many things that stand in the way of that which we desire, that fellowship. Some of them are external, and some of them are internal. We live in a day and age where, in the name of convenience, fellowship is hindered. You understand what I'm saying? In the name of convenience, human interaction is becoming less frequent. And that's where fellowship happens, is in the human interaction. Our adversary has done a fantastic job at limiting human interaction. Um, it's not that long ago that if you wanted to fill your car with gas, you had to go into the store and pay for it. Well, guess what? You don't anymore. Credit card at the pump. How convenient. You don't have to talk to the gas attendant anymore. It used to be, not too long ago, that if you wanted to buy groceries, you had to stand in line, perhaps talk to the person in front of you or behind you, and definitely talk to the cashier. Well, guess what? You scan. You don't have to have human interaction anymore. Take it an even step further. You don't even have to go to the store anymore. You can click list it and they bring it to your car. Yes, there's human Or if you don't want to do that, you can order it on Amazon and it ends up on your porch or Instacart. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to go. You really don't ever have to leave your home again if you don't want to. You want to eat a meal out, but you don't want to go out? DoorDash, Uber Eats. We do that. We did that Friday night. We got home. Friday night, we were all worn out. No, that was last night. And uh, we were all worn out and just didn't feel like going out. Well, in the name of convenience, human interaction is in decline. Used to be if you wanted to order McDonald's, you had to speak to somebody through a speaker on the, uh, you know, at the drive-thru or at a cash to a cashier. Now what happens when you go into McDonald's? They've got the kiosk. Just order what you want. Number 476, yep, that's me. There's your bag. That's the most interaction that you have. Probably one of the greatest external deterrents from human interaction is this device right here. We spend so much more time looking down than we do looking at. In the name of convenience. 
And all these things, while they are good tools and they are convenient and I take advantage of them as we all do, they can hinder fellowship. When we were at our old location at work, I would uh, go down, there weren't very many things to eat, uh, eat out around where we were, we were kind of in the hood. So there's a Wendy's about a mile south of where we are that uh, we frequented often. I would end up there two to three times a week, um, picking up lunch for myself or for other people. And there's an old black guy that ran the cashier, uh, ran the register at, in the drive-thru. And it's been a number of years now, and I was trying to rack my brain for his name this morning, and it wouldn't come to me. So we'll call him Charles, because I can't remember what his name was. But I, at that time, knew his name and um, made it intentional to know his name uh, so that every time I pulled around the drive-thru, he'd say, welcome to Wendy's, may I take your order? Hey, Charles, how's it going today? And he'd look through his window, Chris, what's going on, man? And it would actually change the interaction. It would become more human. It would become, through a <laughs> drive-thru speaker, fellowship. And I got to learn about how he needed a new head. And when he had his hip surgery and, and standing all day at the cash register, how much pain it would cause him. And I tell him, oh man, I'm praying for you. Let me know if there's anything I could do. And every time I went into the, ca the, the, the grocery store, and I still do this, um, I would intentionally go through a line with a cashier. Um, I still use this use scan once in a while. But anytime I had that experience with somebody, they were wearing a name tag, I would use their name. Hey, Heather, thanks for taking care of me today. And it makes a connection. When you use somebody's name, it makes the connection. And you can see that human interaction happen. Fellowship. In, a, in the most simple form, just by calling somebody by their name. There's a book um, called Unreasonable Hospitality by Will Gadara. And he's a, 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 a restaurateur that ended up owning 11 Madison, Madison Park, uh, which became the best restaurant in the world while he owned it. And what separated 11 Madison Park from all the other fine dining restaurants in the world was not the chef that they had. It was not the cuisine that they had. It wasn't the presentation. It was their unreasonable hospitality. That's what escalated them above all the other restaurants in the world. And one of the things they did in their pursuit of unreasonable hospitality was they got rid of the hostess thing. So when a person made a reservation, the hostess memorized the person's name and what they looked like, social media, it's not that hard to do. So that when they walked in, good evening, Mr. Rogers, how are you this evening? I'll take you to your table human connection, interaction, no barrier. And, and, and so it, it just things like that are like, oh, th this is the fellowship that we all long to have, right? So there are these external hindrances that I want us to be aware of to say, okay, what can I do differently in my day-to-day -day life to encourage fellowship? And then there's internal hindrances as well. And none of us really want to look at those. <laughs> none of us really want to consider those, but there are those things that keep us from fellowshipping 
as well. And I was listening to a podcast this week, and this one caught me off guard. One of the things that can hinder our fellowship with one another is our perception management. Our perception management. We tend to portray something that we're not. We pretend to, or we tend to pretend to be something that we're not. We have we manage our people's perception of us. And that can hinder true fellowship. What do, what do I mean? Well, it's something that we need to be, the idea that we cast airs present ourselves in a way that's different than who we truly are is so dangerous that God gives a very strong warning against it in the book of Acts. And I've never considered this story as perception management. Let's read it. Acts chapter 5. Actually, let's start in four. The the church was blowing up. Three thousand get saved when the Holy Spirit falls. Another four to five thousand uh, later on when this rushing wind comes in and people find out what this rush. They're like, "What's this rushing wind going on?" And and they tell them what's going on. You know, the tongues of fire dancing on people's head. And and like it says, five thousand men gave their lives to Christ that day. Well, 5,000 men did. How many women? How many children? The, the, the church is just blowing up. And then all of a sudden, at the end of that, while all of this is going on, there's this incredibly stark warning in Acts chapter 5. It says at the end of 4, um, verse 32, Now the multitudes of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. The, the idea of this true fellowship. Neither did anyone say that any of his things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought proceeds of all the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joses, by whom, uh, by her, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this this great communion, there's this great fellowship happening, and and, and to the point that um, they were so compelled that they began selling their possessions in order to take care of one another. Uh, this this agape love to say I'm, they're self-sacrificing in order to make sure that everyone had their needs taken care of. And then this guy named Joses sells a piece of land and he brings it, the, 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 the proceeds from selling the land 
to the apostles to say, hey, I sold this land, I didn't need it, and so you guys take this money and do with it what you want. And so they rename him Barnabas, son of encouragement. That would be very encouraging, right? Because it's say, wow, thank you. We appreciate all that you've done for us and, and, and how we can bless other people in this way. Well, evidently, while all of that is happening, there's this man and woman, a married couple, who wants some of that glory. I wonder what the apostles will call us if we do that. And so verse, or chapter 5, But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it. So this was a plot and brought a certain part of the land, uh, brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not yours to control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. That is perception management. That's exactly what it is. Hey, Sapphira, babe, we got this thing. We don't need it. Let's sell it. Uh, we got this part of land, and we'll make $10,000 on it. We'll give the church $7,000 on it. We're doing a good thing. We'll keep three for ourselves, but we'll make it look like we're giving everything to the church. Maybe they'll call me a son of encouragement, too. Perception management. Do you know the rest of the story? It gets deadly serious. <laughs> Ananias drops dead. The young men have to carry him out and bury him. And then Sapphira, his wife, comes in. Hey, we did this great thing. Um, the young men who just took your husband out are now going to take you out. And she drops dead also. Pretty stark warning that we need to guard against that which might keep us from true fellowship. Perception management. When I wanted to start a college ministry, I've shared this story before. Michelle and I were down in Florida at a pastor's conference, and the place was packed out. So much so that uh, there was a Bible college students there, probably 15, 15 or so that I remember at least, that decided to give up their seats because no, there wasn't room to sit. And so they ended up sitting on the floor which happened at early Calvary Chapel too, the movement, early movement people would come in and sit on the floor like that. And uh, um, and so they all were sitting on the floor up at the front waiting for the session to start. And Michelle and I were like, yeah, I think the Lord's leading us to start a, a college ministry. And so I'm going to, I told Michelle, I'm going to go sit with you. And uh, which is not like me. I'm an introvert for the most part. And I don't necessarily like, look forward to meeting people I don't know but uh, I wanted to talk with them and so I sat with them and said hey this is what's going on my name is Chris I'm from Ohio and they're like never heard of it but uh, <laughs> um, 
thinking about starting a college college age ministry, you guys are college age students. What's the one thing you would tell somebody like me who wants to start a college age ministry? And I think it was three or four of them all said the exact same word at almost the same time. And then everybody else agreed. Be authentic. Be authentic. If we want true fellowship with one another, we have to be authentic. And we can't play the game of perception management. We can't portray that we are okay when we're not. We can't choose the right camera angle for our lives to only display a portion of it. We've created this beautiful meal that is captured on Instagram while the world behind us is in shambles. We have to be authentic. This remodel has been really, really difficult for me. Um, I've come to realize I'm old. <laughs> Chris and I have been talking a lot about that recently. And that I don't have the capacity that I used to. And it's been hard um, because there's so much I want to do and there's so much I want to do accomplish. And I had a timeline set and which is, you know, show your plans to God and he'll quickly show you how you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and things have taken longer than I anticipated them taking. Um, when we started talking about these things and, and the things that I would like to do, I, I'm so grateful for Rob and for Chris and that I have elders that I can stand shoulder to shoulder with and how they quickly corrected me. Yeah, I think we can get it done in about three weeks. Oh, no, <laughs> double that, and maybe longer. I'm like, nah, we got this. And I even even I said, I, I, okay, guys, you're right. You're probably right. Six weeks, but in my mind, I'm like, no, we can get this done in three weeks. And having church here in 24 last week just felt off to me. I'm like, this bugs me that we have to do this. And then to say, well, we probably need to do it again next week. And then for me to say this morning, we probably need to do it again next week. I texted my elders, or my leadership Tuesday morning. Michelle was in Maryland. Um, and I said, guys, I need some prayer. Um, physically, this is wearing me down. Uh, I've come to realize 
I don't have the strength I used to have. I don't have the energy I used to have. Uh, and I just don't have the drive that I used to have. I need prayer for physical strength. And mentally, it's wearing me down too because I had errors in my mind. I had perception in my mind of the way things I wanted them to go. Straight line. And uh, I'm so grateful for my leadership because they all got back with me pretty quickly. Hey, we're praying for you. Is there anything I can do? Um, and, and just the way they responded was truly beautiful. Um, so thank you guys for that. But uh, kind of spent most of the week depressed because I'm not as strong as I used to be and things weren't going the way that I want them to go. And I found a meme, I think that same day that I texted, you know, I have this straight line mentality and when we have the straight line, this is my idea and here's how God goes, you know, it's like <laughs> down through this water and this ravine and barbed wire and around me, you know, it's just, but in that he's building our character and building, um, he's more important, or, or, I'm sorry, he, he does, he, hopes to shape our character, that's the most important thing to him, to conform us to his image, uh, than the result of a beautiful sanctuary or what have you. And so, um, and part of the difficulty, I think, with this process has been, because of timing, a lot of the work has I've been I've done it by myself. And I don't mean that other people aren't helping, but we were working at different times. Chris gets off work at early in the afternoon and we come over and work for a few hours and then go home um, for dinner or to be with his family about the time I was getting off work and coming and working the evenings. And so a lot of times up until this week, I was doing this work what felt like by myself, even though other people were working. And so as the week went along, I just really kind of became discouraged to say, man, it seems so overwhelming. And what I need is fellowship. And... Uh, I just got kind of discouraged. So Wednesday night, I was like, you know what? I'm not working. I don't want to do it. And can do that at track meet. So I was able to go to the track meet. And I probably should have worked Thursday night, but I didn't feel like it. Because nobody was going to be there. And I didn't want to go there by myself. Matt had contacted me earlier in the week and said, hey, I can come on Friday. So I was like, all right, I got to work Friday. And as he and I worked together for a few hours on Friday night, my, uh, I was really encouraged because we got a lot accomplished in just a couple of hours. And then yesterday we had a, a working afternoon and Jeremy came and my mom came and Lisa came and Stefan came and Landon came and Lisa came. And I was trying to go through all the people in my mind. I was getting there. Um, you just me up on the floor. You were laying down. Why did your mom text backwards? 
and there was fellowship. What our enemy wants to do is make us feel isolated. I'm all alone. There's, it's me against the world. Or I'm the only person that has this struggle. Or nobody struggles with this sin the way that I do. I'm the only person that. Jesus saves us individually. He saves us to a family. And that family is the fellowship that we all desire. I know some of us are extroverted and really crave the human interaction and, and are good at it. And there are other others of us who um, prefer to be introverted and are okay with being alone at times. But even at introverted people need fellowship. We're all starving for it. And so, two things. They devoted themselves to the Apostles' Doctrine. They want to remain rooted in His Word. And to fellowship. And what that means is I think we need to live intentionally seeking out that human interaction. Avoiding the things that externally keep us from fellowshipping with one another and intentionally being looking at the internal hindrances that would keep us from true, authentic fellowship. Because it is nourishing to our souls when it's genuine. Amen? So yeah, I'm just really grateful for um, all that's transpiring. Um, and what was cool is yesterday, that was all, the, the, the group that I mentioned was the second shift. There was a, a couple guys here earlier in the morning, Chris and Jeff had done some stuff. And so um, they were able to encourage one another and work with one another as well. And so. Um, I want us to be a healthy church. Um, and the way that happens is sticking to these things in Acts 2.42. So we'll continue to present the word Sunday after Sunday. What I ask of you is that we continually pursue genuine fellowship. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather today, and I pray that um, we would always keep in view your mercy and the depth of love that you have for us, oh God. And I ask that you would give us an unsatiating hunger for your word. That we wouldn't be satisfied with a, a small meal on Sunday morning, Lord, but in our own 
personal lives, Lord. We would hunger for that word in the morning and in the evenings, Lord, that we would open your word and, and read it and, and learn from it, God, that we would learn to feed ourselves from your word so that when we gather on Sunday mornings, it would just be an outpouring of all that you fed us during the week. Give us that hunger for your word. And I pray for genuine, authentic, transparent, fellowship that is not hindered, Lord, by external things, that isn't hindered by internal things, God. That we wouldn't strive to present ourselves in a way that we aren't, that we wouldn't put on airs or uh, we would take care of our perception and management, Lord, but rather we would just be authentic and true. This is who we are. This is our flaws. We love one another. And I think that begins in forgiveness. What we talked about in Matthew chapter 18, it's understanding, Jesus, that you have forgiven us for far more than, far more sin than anybody that's ever sinned against us. When we maintain that perception, Lord, that this debt that could never be paid back. You have taken on your shoulder. And then we can walk in the freedom of knowing that you uphold us. You are our strength and our portion and our shield, Lord. And I pray that we would hunger for a genuine, authentic fellowship. That we would have a love for one another that is um, shoot, I can't think of the word. That people would desire it, Lord. That people would see this love that Church 860 has and would want to be a part of it, Lord. They would crave it. That we would welcome people with open arms to say, as we have been loved by our Father, so that's how we want to love one another. And by that love, the world will know that we are your disciples. And we walk in that love now as we leave this place. Thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you that you're here with us. We give you glory in Jesus' name.